Hello and welcome to this edition of the Samfire podcast. Uh, my name's Chris Holt and I am the chairman of Samfire and I'm joined today by Charlie Hanbury, who's the CEO. Hello, Chris. Um, Charlie, we decided that we ought to talk about kidnap for ransom and mused uh, whether this is the most misunderstood or poorly named uh, insurance product in the market. Uh, I've, I've been involved with this line of business since around 2008 and i know you've been involved for a little bit longer do you mind just explaining your your background in kidnap and ransom and why it might be interesting to hear you speak today yeah sure so my first involvement with kidnap and ransom insurance was in 2004 and i suppose like a lot of people in the insurance industry i fell into the industry rather than deliberately strode into it and actually the, the, the reason for ending up in kidnap and ransom was purely linked to my um ability or my um, language ability in Spanish. And um, I was looking to make sure I could use that language and, and by hook or by crook ended up being a Latin American focused high net worth in terms of client focused kidnap for ransom broker. Um, so that was in 2004 and I spent three years very happily um, navigating around various Latin American markets, talking to you know, fascinating families, organizations about their personal security and how kidnap for ransom insurance could help. But from 2007 to present day, I've been underwriting the risk, mainly focused around corporates operating in, in hostile and non-permissive parts of the world. So um, so nearly 20 years on, on your side. So hopefully uh, at least a perspective, Charlie. Um, when I mention to people uh, that... I'm involved in this market. Often uh, the only point of reference they've got is the Hollywood film Proof of Life, where I obviously try to persuade people that I'm the Russell Crowe character. Uh, sadly, that's not true. But a lot of people really don't have an idea of, of what Kidnap and Ransom uh, as an insurance product is all about. So how did, how did this all begin? Why is the London insurance market involved? You know, what 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 is this uh, what is this sector that people are aware of predominantly through Hollywood movies? Well, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's sort of, it's something that captures the imagination. I think, you know, the words kidnap and ransom are, are kind of evocative of, of scenarios that, that do linger within Hollywood movies rather than everyday life. So it's, it's, a, it's a name of a product which kind of captures the imagination, but also quite quickly, it perhaps diminishes in the mind of people relevance to themselves or, or, or potentially organisations. And that's part of the challenge of providing insurance in this space is, is ensuring that a product that's got really pretty bad name in terms of what it delivers to the end user, that they can understand why it's relevant to them. But we might come on to that. But in terms of its its roots, I mean, it's it's debatable, but I think a lot of, a lot of people would credit it um, starting very early, relatively in the 20th century. I think it was 1932 with the kidnap of Charles Lindbergh, the, mm -hmm. the famous wealthy American philanthropist, his infant son, was was kidnapped and and tragically was killed as a result of that situation. And um, like like many risks that have kind of evolved over the years and become insurable, its roots started in Lloyd's of London. Now this is a market that has always had a reputation for taking the the uninsurable or the or the new risk and finding somebody to come up with a solution as to how that risk can be transferred. So that's the sort of earliest trace we have of, of this type of risk being insurable in the Lloyd's market, but. But I think it's probably fair to say that it, it starts to become a little bit more mainstream, if that's the right way of putting it, from the 1970s onwards. And that, that really aligned with specialist companies um, starting to promote themselves as, um, as being able to provide a very specialist service in helping families and companies to manage the risk or manage the situation arising from something like a kidnap, helping them navigate through that situation. And that really started in the mid-70s. And alongside those services sprung up insurance policies that would cover the fees and expenses of these people mm -hmm. to go in and help um, help the families concerned. So yeah, really, it's it's the kind of the latter part of the 20th century onwards. And, and um, it's evolved heavily from then. It's become quite a mainstream product for many organisations around the world nowadays to consider buying. So just going back to the misconceptions, um, and we will come back to this point around the product being so much more than than financial protection and this kind of access to help. But the perception often is that, you know, this is a, an insurance product where pretty much everyone involved is uh, X something or other with a chunky watch. Uh, and that when you call the, the phone number, 
what you get is people with wraparound shades and big bags of money that turn up. Uh, and actually the reality is is slightly different. Would, would you mind just talking through who's involved? So if you like, who are the market participants? Who might, if a, if a client was going to uh, find themselves purchasing this type of cover and or heaven forbid having an incident who are the who are the people that are involved in this market perhaps from kind of brokers for insurers and responders i suppose government as well but who who are the protagonists yeah i mean it's obviously you know you, you'd start with somebody who feels exposed um to the risk of something like kidnapping and that might be um you know a wealthy family in a, in a part of the world like mexico where where unfortunately this this crime is quite um prevalent or it may well be um, a company that has expatriates or employees based in parts of the world where, again, the security environment might dictate that things like kidnapping occur more frequently um, than in other parts of the world. So, you know, you'd always start with somebody that feels exposed to that risk. And then you have um, the kind of insurance broking side of the market, which is is there to represent the interests of clients that want to go out and buy insurance. Um, and they would then approach the insurance market itself and Typically, the insurers involved in this space are international insurers. I'd say the greatest bulk of these insurers are based in London. London still would remain the kind of global center of expertise for this type of insurance. And those insurers would then typically retain a relationship with a crisis security consultancy. So if you take yourself, if we go back down the chain to that individual or organization which wishes to protect themselves against this risk, if the worst befalls them and a loved one or an employee is kidnapped, that response consultancy or that crisis consultancy would be activated via the insurance policy to come and assist them from start to finish in that case. And then the other protagonists that would be involved would typically be managed by that consultancy. So law enforcement, perhaps government agencies, perhaps the media, perhaps other shareholders as an organization or extended family members, if it's, if it's a, you know, family case, and the idea being that insurance helps provide a, a kind of an arm around the shoulders of the family or, or the organization to give them all the help and ex- access to expertise they need to be able to resolve that case safely. And I, I think it's fair to say, Charlie, that, that often uh, clients, whether they're families or organizations, when, when they do call on their policy, are quite surprised at how um, diverse and sophisticated some of those response consultants are. It's not, not quite what people are expecting all of the time. Absolutely not. I mean, I think absolutely traditionally, the backgrounds of most of these consultancy or consultants within these crisis consultancies are drawn from, you know, ex-military, ex-intelligence, sometimes police. But increasingly, and I've seen in my career, um, people from academia, journalism, um, family liaison, and and sometimes people in second careers, you know, coming coming out of, for instance, the academic system as a teacher or something like that. I think I think the kind of the common line is somebody with life experience and empathy to be able to sit in a room in a potentially a highly traumatic situation and bring calm and, and a kind of steadying of the ship to that situation. And that, that isn't always people who've got backgrounds you might imagine. So look, we, you've covered it a little around the kind of who's involved, really who buys K&R and we really ought to have a better term for it. Let's say it's a K&R for now or kind of security cover uh, I suppose one of the questions that that gets posed, and I, I've had posed to me quite a lot, is you know, is th- is this really for us? Um, often, when speaking or introducing the concept of kidnapped ransom cover, perhaps to a a corporation, the the immediate answer is, but but we don't travel to Colombia. Again, the kind of answer based around this misconception: who are the people that buy K and R? I mean, you've you've said it's it's families and that it's corporations, but it's broader than perhaps people might think. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do think increasingly in any jurisdiction, a high net worth family considers this type of cover because they may be concerned about, um, you know, everything from their, their children between college and university, perhaps traveling around the world uh, and, and going to parts of the world where the environment's not as stable. They may be concerned about their own personal profile in, their, in the, the environment they live within against kind of extortive threats, extortive crime. Um, you know, there's plenty of statistics that, that back up how, how frequently these things happen. But also, increasingly, they, there are the angle around how people's virtual profile online and how that can make them a softer target to be, to be targeted both domestically, but, you know, it's, the digital world transcends borders. You know, we, we see high net worth families being targeted 
in the digital space, either for their assets or you know against their loved ones, um, with 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 greater commonality. In terms of the sort of corporates, I suppose, particularly in the developed world and the developed economies, there's such an emphasis on duty of care. You know how, how you are mm-hmm. managing the risks that your employees and directors, officers are. You know the, the risks they're exposed to. And that traveling around the globe does present challenges, personal security challenges, but also increasingly organizations themselves can be targeted by common criminality. Sometimes it can be disgruntled ex-employees who've, you know, for whatever reason, decided to target their ex-employee with malicious threats or extortive type threats. Sometimes it can be situations such as workplace violence in the workplace itself. And sometimes it can be, um, uh, you know, as simple as being, well, not as simple, but as, as um, binary is being caught up in a, in, a, in a nasty sort of terrorist style situation. And all of these scenarios are scenarios that, that are covered by the policy kidnap and ransom. So that kind of talks to how it's a, it's a name which points in a single direction, but actually it's a policy coverage which goes in many directions. I think let's scratch at that issue around the kind of broad range of issues that are covered by the cover perhaps in a moment, because I do think that uh, it's potentially a very poorly named uh, product where the benefit the organizations particularly organizations i think families often get it and have got time to consider what the issues are mm-hmm. but 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 from from my experience organizations often only feel the benefit at the point where they wish they bought the, the cover if that makes sense there's often a lot yeah. of, kind of retrospective regret and i suppose part of our job is to ensure that it is better understood um and perhaps we can do something around uh, naming conventions as well but, but on, on this kind of first piece around perhaps some of the misconceptions that there are for very obvious reasons but you might talk those through a, a, a kidnap ransom insurance policy is confidential mm-hmm. uh, and and often the resolution of issues uh, quite reasonably doesn't end up in the public domain and then again you might cover that off but that seems to create this suggestion whenever i see uh, the kidnapper ransom market covered, not whenever that's unfair, but often when I see it covered in the media, it's referred to either as the shadowy world of kidnapper ransom um, or or indeed is referred to as being controversial. I think it is, if, if you don't mind, just talking through the rationale behind that confidentiality, um, why things don't tend to end up in the public domain, and then perhaps these questions that we often get asked around legality kind of sanctions and perhaps, sorry, it's a long question, Charlie, but perhaps also this that's that tends to get wrapped up in that, this assumption that surely this is all, all about dealing with terrorists in hostile locations. Yeah. I mean, I think your last point is an, is an interesting one because again, you know, the, the kind of, when people look at the product kidnap and ransom, you know, as I talked about at the beginning of this, this session, you know, they think, well, there's, there's two kind of evocative words, but they don't sound very relevant to me. And then perhaps they think the relevance is towards those cases you you mentioned, you know, sort of high profile terrorist style kidnappings. Um, and, you know, we can think back over the last decade, how, for instance, organizations like ISIS used kidnapping and unfortunately kind of, you know, execution of, of hostages as a, as an extremely effective means of raising profile, inducing terror, and pushing their their um pushing their own agenda. Now the reality is those cases, from from a statistical perspective of the, of the statistics that are measurable, are very very small. You know, certainly you're, you're talking probably under under two percent. Mm. So the vast majority of cases tend to be what you might call common criminality in all corners of the globe, and they they're probably fairly you know and fairly so they don't hit the agenda because actually either they're managed discreetly or because simply in the jurisdictions they happen and they're quite common and they're not kind of newsworthy. Some, some occasionally are, but, but most aren't. But to your point about confidentiality, it, it is very important because, you know, I don't think it's, it's too much of an imagination stretch that if you were to publicise the fact you had this type of insurance, it might make you more of a victim or a potential victim, I should say. Mm. So I think that's, you know, it's an important point from the policyholders perspective for their own good that they keep as a, as a moral hazard if you like for the individual yeah. exposed that they've got cover i think so and, and you know I, I i've been involved in cases over the years where you know for instance young adults or, or junior employees if they'd known about this cover being in place and they'd been the victim of a kidnap you know may well have have kind of 
use that knowledge to think they were helping by getting themselves out of the situation quicker by saying, well, listen, don't worry, I'm insured. This will all be over, you know, we can deal with this quickly. Yeah. And actually that can change the whole dynamic of a case and potentially put them in more danger if, if they're being held hostage. So there's there's all sorts of good reasons for keeping it confidential. But that doesn't mean it's it's shady. And I think some of the questions that come up very frequently or some of the the, the pokes that this, this industry gets in the chest would be around, you know, does it encourage the crime? And in fact, in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher's government had a, a committee that looked specifically at the K&R industry as to whether it was helping uh, potentially fund the crime. And this was through the particular lens of, of looking at IRA activity. Mm-hmm. But actually, the, the conclusion that was drawn was that, that, that no, it wasn't. And actually, I think we we as an industry, from an insurance perspective, can demonstrate that through the confidentiality, people protecting themselves through that, through the advice and knowledge and analysis and intelligence, we as insurers and brokers in, in this industry involved can pass on to clients. We can make them better informed as to how to manage their own risks and therefore actually potentially be harder to target in the first place. So just like you know, perhaps household insurance, making people get burglar alarms on their house or fire doors has helped improve the safety of people at home. Arguably, the KNR industry from an insurance perspective has done the same um, in terms of making people more, more hard to target. And I, and I think just going back to the, um, the point around kind of policymaker review, um, I seem to remember that in 2015, 2016, we as a sector came under quite close scrutiny, both in the UK Theresa May at the time was Home Secretary, and in the US, there was a under Obama, there was a presidential statement that was put mm-hmm. out, and I think that was quite reasonably in response to concerns around legality, around um, payment ransom to terrorist organisations, uh, which of course is illegal, yeah. um, around sanctions issues, and and I think it's fair to say that those reviews came to a similar conclusion that that um, and actually there's a good summary I think in the Rusi paper that was published. Um, I might make sure that we we put the link on um, on the podcast. But Anya Shortland um, from King's College was one of the co-authors, mm-hmm. which really set out how this is a pragmatic this this sector is a pragmatic and sensible s- solution to what is you know something that is unlikely to go away. I, th- I think that's exactly it. You know, it's, it's a pragmatic, entirely legal, operating entirely within the legal framework of the jurisdictions that the policy is available in. And that would include, by the way, uh, and, and you referred to the UK legislation, I think, of 2014, which was specific to um, kidnapping involving prescribed or terrorist organisations. And really, that that was obviously coinciding with around the time of those very high profile cases we talked about earlier. Under UK law, for, for instance, it is not illegal to pay a ransom. That's been tested um, at the High Court. But more or less in common with every jurisdiction around the world, it is illegal to pay a ransom to a terrorist organisation. Yeah. Now, again, if you, if, you, if you think back to the point I made a few minutes ago, that really a very small percentage of cases that are recorded involve terrorists, it means the vast majority of cases out there that happen where ransoms are being paid. Uh, and there are some exceptions territorially. I mean, there are, there are places like Italy where payment of ransom is illegal, certain South American countries. But in the vast majority of cases, the payment of a ransom to a non-prescribed or terrorist organisation is is entirely legal. And I think um, it'll be useful also uh, to talk through in a moment that kidnap only actually forms a small percentage of the kind of responses that this this um, insurance policy has. Charlie, we we spent um, a bit of time, hopefully, dispelling some of the myths and misunderstandings around this insurance product, and I suppose repeatedly dwelled on this thought that perhaps this is the worst name product in the insurance market. Um, and moreover, that actually, a lot of the time, what the recipients um, or the beneficiaries of these policies find is that what it actually provides them with is access to help rather than kind of out and out financial uh, indemnification. But just just by way of starting the conversation of, of the claims that you've seen over the years, can you give people an idea, you know, how many of those are related to kidnaps in hostile environments? And what's the proportion that actually relate to the whole range of other benefits that come with this type of insurance policy? Yeah, sure, Chris. Um, and I think, you know, I think that there's, there's a trend here. Uh, if you were, again, to look at 
data available. And admittedly, a lot of this data isn't necessarily in the public domain, um, but it's published um, normally to discrete audiences via the various consultancies involved in, in helping people um, who've been involved in these types of cases. But that data is showing a kind of a trend of diminishing cases of what you might call classic kidnap for ransom. Mm-hmm. So much so that the major consultancies involved in helping people and organizations through these problems nowadays would probably be dedicating around a third of their activations or you know, um, case days to kidnapping and therefore two thirds to, to other uh, situations. So I guess the question is, what, what are those situations? Um, and, you know, without getting too listy about it, I think worth just sort of saying that typically one of these policies would cover the following scenarios, obviously kidnap, extortion, uh, malicious detention, mm-hmm. hostage situations, what we call unexplained disappearances, people who just disappeared, no rhyme or reason, um, general malicious threats, hijack scenarios, obviously that's associated more often with, with uh, you know, airplanes or um, uh, ships, ships being hijacked. Um, express kidnapping. This is something that happens typically in in um, kind of Latin American countries. Is, is very associated. It's, it's effectively a form of robbery. Mm-hmm. Uh, general criminal assault, workplace violence, stalking. But I think perhaps one of the the most underappreciated, perhaps most useful parts of the cover is what we call political or security evacuation. And I'm sure our audience would be aware of a number of extremely high-profile cases over the last 10, 15 years where kidnap for ransom and policies have played a really crucial role in helping mainly companies, but often families, get their people out of countries that have deteriorated very quickly in terms of a political security environment. So most recently, Afghanistan, August 2021, Mm -hmm. with the pullout of the NATO coalition, um, I'm sure you'll recall on, on the news that you know there was, a, there was a huge effort to evacuate people out of the country. Then a lot, a lot of that effort would have been underpinned by this type of insurance, paying for the costs, the direct costs involved, but also paying for those organisations that can help people go in and get them out. Um, a little bit further back in time, the Arab Spring, where I'm sure again people will recall, you know, starting in Tunisia, but Egypt, Libya, Syria, even Oman to a degree. You know, th- these countries had a period of intense political unrest, which put the, li- the lives of particularly expatriates at risk. Um, and again, that was probably one of the single largest involvements of the kidnap and ransom insurance market in helping people, the Arab Spring. And that wasn't anything to do with kidnapping. That was getting all about getting people out of a situation that was deteriorating fast and getting them to safety. No, and I, I think when, you know, when I've spoken to organisations, one of the things they're most surprised by is just how useful that political evacuation cover is um, not just for those uh, fragile parts of the world where perhaps you might expect that uh, if you're doing business there, you you want some kind of arrangements in place, but but also those geographies where, frankly, unexpected things can happen. And you know, as long as and without being too technical, but you know, the trigger for for this support coming in is often that either the the um, the FCDO foreign Commonwealth office or the state department or an equivalent says actually we recommend that you leave now mm-hmm. normally that along with an agreement from the response consultant that it makes sense for you to leave normally triggers uh the response and that you know as as with a lot of the the benefits with this type of product actually it's the practical pragmatic help from the response consultant in explaining well that this is these are the routes that you can use to, to yeah. leave you know, here's what other people are doing. This seems a low risk way of traveling at the moment. We can pick you up from your hotels. You know, it's that kind of practical support, which often quite reasonably um, companies that do send people overseas for business aren't necessarily well r- routine, uh, you know, well rehearsed at, at doing that type of thing. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, often these security consultancy um, companies retain assets on the ground and in, in, you know, unstable locations or have you know, deeply entrenched networks. And, and you're kind of buying access really to that. So, you know, I can think of a number of examples where this policy has delivered such power to the end user that they just wouldn't be available to them 
otherwise. You know, re- relying on the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to help you in a situation where, like Afghanistan last year, well, I'm sure you remember, it was kind of join the back of the queue type approach. Yeah. Um, but even other situations, you know, I, I remember dealing with a case where um, a young US student who was traveling overseas for his kind of year out had, had not phoned home for 72 hours. And um, he'd been phoning home very regularly because his mother was was suffering um, with an illness. And so his parents were naturally quite concerned. And really, to, to cut a long story short, you know, rather than relying on the law enforcement of that Southeast Asian country, um, which, you know, pragmatically or practically rather would have been rather difficult to perhaps mm. get hold of or explain the situation. They're able to invoke the support of the policy and dispatch specialist consultants to locate their son. And, and actually all that had happened is he, he decided to go away for a long weekend to an island where there was no telephone or signal or Wi-Fi. So I had no means of communicating. Hadn't realised before he was going, but through the kind of special investigative services, he was able to be traced. And, you know, it's that kind of power that these policies give people mm-hmm. at their fingertips when others need, may need to rely on law enforcement or, you know, standard approaches. I was actually going to come back to the the issue of disappearance because it's one which I, I, I've ended up talking to people about a lot um, because it's, it's, as you say, it's a bit listy, the uh, the kind of range of things that the policy provides for. But, but disappearance I always find fascinating because so many other things start with a disappearance. Yeah. You know, we we don't know where X is. We don't we don't know where he or she is gone. We can't get in touch with them. Actually, that period of uncertainty, and it and it can sadly often be the precursor to um, a malicious detention um, by by a state or non-state actor, or some kind of um, kidnapping or an extortion. But that period of disappearance is often more um, more unsettling because you don't actually know what's going on. You know, once you're engaged in negotiating with a, a state actor who's detained someone, then at least you know what you're doing and you can bring in the relevant support and the policy helps you do that. That period of uncertainty can be really unsettling for people, I think. Absolutely. And, and you know, to, to my point a minute ago, you know, if, if, if it's happened in a, in a location or jurisdiction you're not familiar with, um, maybe language issues, you know, whatever it may be, being able to call on support in your own language um, and immediate support, you know, there's no kind of time limit, having to wait, you know, the, in such and such country, the police require you to be missing for 48 hours before they do anything or you know, anything like that. You know, it's, it's immediate help. And I think for the relatively small price that, frankly, these policies cost, and we don't want to get too um, too base about how much things cost, but the reality is they tend to be very affordable policies and the power they can deliver, the end user, is, is in the situations we've been talking about, whether it's evacuating from Afghanistan or locating a lost college kid in Southeast Asia, it's um, it's it's a it's a tremendous um, resource that you can call on when you have this type of cover. And uh, just on that, and I think the disappearance one, because most of the time, thankfully, um, you know, disappearances are are resolved where there is something, uh, you know, somebody just been off off communications for a long period of time because they are doing mm-hmm. doing something that means they're off off communication, but. Um, what what happens um, at that point is is that still covered by the policy or because you know we we do get these unusual questions but there's no um what what's the point I'm trying to get to people are encouraged to use the policy I think is what I'm trying to to say absolutely I mean you know we we talked through that list it, it covers a you know a long a long list a wide list of of um, kind of personal security matters. And it's designed, and then the, the response services that sit behind it are really designed to, um, to, to react to any type of scenario. Um, you know, the people that pick up that telephone to answer the call of need to a family organization are, are highly trained, have, have seen many different types of things from kidnappings, hostage situations, through to missing kids, mm. through to evacuations. Um, and, and the intent of the policy is to give certainty and some form of an answer when, you know, uh, some form of crisis has hit you. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example of that. I remember years ago, um, a ship we were insuring was hijacked off the coast of Somalia. And, and the words the ship owner said once the ship was released after six weeks um, of being held off the coast, he said, the greatest thing that policy gave me, referring to a kidnap and ransom policy, was what's my answer when 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 the news hit me that 22 people whose lives I was responsible for on board my ship had been hijacked. 
mm. who's able to kind of put in place some framework of um, of a response because he knew the moment he picked up the telephone, he was going to get help. And that was the beginning of resolving this situation rather than kind of flapping around in the wind, trying yeah, yeah. to find what your first step is going to be towards re- resolving. So, look, I, I do want to scratch on two of the things that are also covered because, frankly, they're in well, certainly in my experience, as almost as as common as the kind of the traditional kidnap side of things, and that's that's malicious detention and workplace violence, which I, I recognise are at kind of polar opposite ends of the spectrum. But I, I think the workplace violence one is is utterly fascinating that it that it falls under this kind of um, this milieu of of the list of things. Do you, do you mind just talking through maybe? Some examples of of what what that means because that could be really wide workplace violence. I mean that that happens quite frequently, doesn't it? Violence in the workplace. Yeah, I mean I think um, you, you you certainly see. I mean, there's even been an expression uh, which I think came out of France, boss napping, which mm-hmm. was um, uh, holding senior management to ransom effectively until conditions or pay demands were met. No, Often around kind of um, work, worker relations, unionised issues. Yeah, okay. And that, that's sort of one form of workplace issue. Uh, I mentioned earlier about disgruntled employees. You know, you often see in recessionary times, layoffs, um, contractions of, um, of of business and, you know, people leaving, losing their livelihoods. And often that can be a moment where a business is exposed to people that know a lot about them, about their internal workings, but have lost their jobs and are disgruntled by that and target them maliciously. And then you have, you know, the classic um, scenario that unfortunately we see particularly so often in America of, of a- actual violence committed on, on the, you know, the workplace location. Um, and all three of those types of scenarios I mentioned can be covered by this policy, mm. both in terms of providing, you know, some form of response to it. So if you're being maliciously targeted, how do you deal with that? If you have had, um, you know, actual violence on your premises. What's your reaction? What's your response to that? What are your obligations and the follow-up to that? You know, these are all things the policy can help with. And then there's financial protection around that as well, um, including if, you know, sadly people lose their lives, um, yeah. uh, you know, a, a death benefit included in the policy. And then um, I, I said I would ask about it, and I, I know that um, Samfar has produced a, a kind of a primer on the issue of malicious detention, which... Sadly, we're seeing increase um, often at borders um, where uh, we're seeing kind of state detention of, of individuals for whatever reason. And I think this certainly is one area when, you know, I, I asked you before the break around, you know, who buys K&R? And, and the answer often is organisations not only who are, uh, you know, travelling to hostile and non-permissive environments, but frankly, any organisation that owes their people a duty of care and who's sending them travelling, you know, on, on kind of routine business travel. Do you, do you mind just explaining briefly what this malicious detention uh, thing consists of? Because I'm not sure that everybody is, is fully aware of, of how frequent and almost routine this is becoming. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the most complex parts of um, the, you know, what the cover reacts to. Um, malicious, it, it may be malicious, it may be coercive. Sometimes it's referred to as illegal detention. Um it, it, it often is undertaken by um, governmental bodies, so it's not criminally motivated. But, you know, there, there are some pretty high-profile examples in the last few years. I mean, I think here in, in the UK with um, Nazamin al zaghari Radcliffe, mm. held for many years by the Iranian authorities. Um, and you could see how, you know, she, she was accused of, of um, various crimes. But I think, you know, the, the consensus was they were sort of, trumped up charges but ultimately you know it appeared this was all linked to an age-old debt uh, that the uk government supposedly owed the iranian government and you know i think to all intents and purposes she ended up as a geopolitical pawn and we've seen we've seen other examples of that the huawei the detention of the huawei cfo in canada Mm -hmm. um, resulted in tit-for-tat detentions of canadian nationals in china we've seen um you know foreign executives being accused in certain countries of corruption or blackmail as a, as a way of um, putting pressure on their companies, you know, in, in that environment, um, all the way through to, uh, you know, a case I've been involved in of um, a German national who was arrested in a foreign location, accused of espionage because he was taking pictures of warships. Now, actually, yeah. he was just a ship enthusiast. 
Um, but again, it, you know, what he was doing was not illegal in, in his home country necessarily. Um, so in the eyes of the policy, he was detained unfairly, possibly for coercive reasons, and and um, and the policy was able to res- respond and support the the individuals involved. And th- these are the types of things that can happen really to anybody anywhere. You know, it's not your your profile or your wealth that necessarily means you end up being targeted for detention. It can just simply be your nationality, your yeah. citizenship, and whether you're caught up in kind of some geopolitical um, issue. And I, and I think as we see the kind of return to great power competition, as we see the, the stresses and strains at a, at, a, at a high level, geopolitical level, you know, whether we're going to see more um, cases of citizens being caught up in this as kind of coercive bargaining pawns, I think is probably quite likely. Um, and so therefore a complex part of the cover, but nonetheless, one of the most important pieces. And I think it's often a surprise to people that, um, you know, the equivalent of uh, the FCDO, if you like consular support, depending on what what nation um, an individual is from, you know, that consular support can be absolutely superb, but quite yeah. reasonably, it's very limited to providing consular support correct and actually what what the response consultants can provide in terms of um you know helping an organization understand what it's you know internal communications might look like as external communications um dealing with families and family members um understanding what the legal issues are um ultimately the kind of the the more financial aspects of covering off that person's salary if it's a long time you know all Mm. of those highly complex uh, issues that arise when these types of things occur that perhaps reasonably to start with people assume is going to be dealt with by you know consular services or the police where frankly the the police and fco are really not are quite reasonably and not equipped to support an organization or a family in that way they'll do what they do and they do it very well but but frankly there's a huge um, gap and what the policy provides is access to people that do this on a regular basis. Absolutely. I think, you know, giving broad context to a case can sometimes be the most important thing that these consultancies can provide. Because uh, you're absolutely right, you know, that diplomatic channels, um, foreign office resources are there to do what they need to do. But very often, you know, if, if, if somebody has been arrested through legal due process, um, you know, this is a legal matter. And some of the cases I've personally been involved in over the years, you know, legal fees have run into the millions of dollars um, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant process of putting, making sure that you're, you're reacting to the legal environment as it changes, you know, you're putting pressure on the system to try and get your individual out. Diplomatic channels are, are kind of there at, at, at perhaps sometimes a higher level, you know, they're working above the legal process. So being able to support clients with, you know, importantly, be able to pay their legal fees has sometimes been a key component of this cover. Mm. So, look, we've gone through the kind of, uh, I was going to call them the additional benefits, but actually they're, they're more like the core benefits with with the kidnap bit being a, an additional benefit. But there we go. Uh, we've kind of laboured that point. But I do just want to, before we chat a little bit um, about what, what Samfar is doing, because I do think it's very interesting, um, I do just want to reach into the slightly technical issue of payment of ransom uh, we talked a little bit about it uh, before the break, but I but I do think it can uh, attract a lot of interest. And certainly at the moment, uh, um, there is kind of broad market discussion and frankly, outside of the insurance market, interest in the payment of ransom for cyber extortion and perhaps a discussion about whether whether things can be learned from the payment of ransom against kidnap and the, the kind of difference between those two. But also, I think, um, and perhaps you'll, you'll talk to that, but but perhaps you might start uh, because, again, I think the general understanding is that there's a um, two cars back into each other in a car park and an exchange is made. Uh, and the reality may surprise people about how a payment sequence works and also what is and isn't covered by the policy, i.e. it's a policy of indemnification, not not one of payment. Do you, do you mind just covering that off? I know it's technical, but I, I do think it's important. No problem. I think, you know, your first point, your last point rather is the first important to make, um, important point to make, which is it is a policy of reimbursement. So, you know, there, there sometimes is this perception that um, if you're covered by this policy, it's the insurance company that are are coughing up for any ransom that's paid. That That is completely 
incorrect. And it always relies on the policyholder to pay and then seek reimbursement from their, their policy. And, and that's important, particularly in, in countries. And I mentioned earlier that there, there are certain countries where you know, the payment of ransom could sometimes be somewhat opaque. Often the, the right to preserve human life supersedes any kind of technical law around payment of ransom. If that payment is made by a third party rather than the direct family, that, that, that kind of situation can become a little bit more opaque. So it's very important that this is, is and is always seen as a policy of reimbursement. That's really important around ensuring that the organisation limits expectation um, with, with the kind of malicious actor, mm-hmm. which then acts as a natural barometer, hopefully, to prevent this kind of ransom escalation. Correct. So uh, th- this question that's often posed around, well, by paying ransom, don't you just encourage the next person to pay it? This this um, this factor, which is that it is only reimbursement and that either the family or the organisation is required to agree what they're going to pay and, and pay it themselves and only then being reimbursed by by the, ins- the insurer does, does at least to some extent uh, mean that we don't get this very unhelpful escalation of ransom payments and provides either the organization or the family with reasonable um the reasonable ability to limit expectation at the other end yeah i think that's absolutely right and you know you talked about delivery of ransom and legality around ransom and you know i'm not a lawyer so i don't propose to get into the the deep nitty-gritty of of the legals around it but i'm happy to give um you know my, my informed opinion but in terms of delivery i mean you know my career involved in this um in this space i've seen everything from bitcoin through to i mean not seen directly but you know being involved in cases where this has happened um you know bitcoin transfers through to uh you know i mentioned ships being hijacked off somalia typically money was delivered as in us dollars in um capsules which were pushed out of airplanes landing by parachute in, in the water beside these vessels mm-hmm. you know sometimes multiple millions of dollars inside these capsules. Um, you know, you'd still see in Latin America and certain parts of Africa now, well, the kind of scenario you talked about, you know, a, a sort of discreet exchange of money in a bag somewhere. And, and often there are companies set up in these, these, um, these countries that, that specialize in that type of service because this, this kind of thing happens. Um, but typically, um, you know, typically the trend, as I, see, as I said earlier, is, is that, that kidnaps tend to be at the lower end of the um, the volume of cases that we see, and, and most cases typically are just complicated, malicious situations which are normally resolved without the exchange of a ransom. Um, sometimes, you know, it may be a um, political pressure, or sometimes it may be a, a family dispute or a business dispute, and those these don't always involve the exchange of cash. But to your point about the legality, and you know, I did touch upon it earlier. Very, very clear. You, you know, you cannot under most laws of the of the the world, but certainly the US um, and the uh, you know European law, payment of ransom to terrorists is is, is absolutely a big no no. But criminal cases, certainly here in the UK, tried and tested, um, and it is not illegal. You know, it's often seen as as a um, as, as a, a payment of last resort, as I said earlier, to preserve human life. Mm. And I think the industry as a whole works hard to um, inform lawmakers and politicians that those who have experienced the benefit of the services that come through policies like this, i.e. engaged with professionals who know how to negotiate, who know the context in which negotiates, you know, for one of a better expression, they'll know the going rate if you've been kidnapped in Nigeria, let's say. Um, because what you don't want is people that pay too much money too quickly, who don't understand the environment yeah. they're in, and that, that's where you start to get the escalation of these problems. And we did see that with Somali piracy, actually. You know, we saw ransom starting at, from kind of a million dollars and really at its height escalating up to 10 million because it became a, you know, an inflationary-driven um, environment because people's negotiation perhaps wasn't tough enough. There's a fascinating discussion ongoing at the moment, I think. So you know, quite reasonably, you know, right to life, um, the kind of broader human rights means that in the case of a kidnapping, there are all sorts of um, reasonable arguments that can be made, particularly around criminal kidnapping, around a payment of ransom to release an individual who's got a right to life. Much of what we're seeing at the moment um, is perhaps in the cyber domain, something that 
uh, I don't know whether we talk about it in detail actually at, at, at this point, but that poses a slightly different question because often uh, if we've got a cyber extortion going on where there's been some kind of um, encryption of data, actually what we're paying the ransom for is to allow a business to continue to operate. And there's a reasonable question around the difference between right to life um, and therefore payment of ransom, which equips a criminal organization with funds to do more criminality, and the extent to which uh, making a payment to that criminal organization is reasonable if if the the quid pro quo is my business can operate a bit more effectively. Yeah, and I, and I think you know there's a there's a huge amount of uncertainty as to who ransoms are being paid to. Um, you know, are they are they state threat actors or are they common criminals or are they even indeed terrorist organisations? I think the consensus is typically they tend to be criminal groups. Uh, but I think an important point about specifically the the kidnap and ransom policy is it's access to legal fees coverage. So, you know, if if as an organization or a family you're concerned about potentially breaking the law by paying a ransom to somebody you shouldn't be paying to, you can utilize the services that come through the policy to help build, you know, build the case that you're not doing that. Um, so the policy itself can help the policyholders stay on the right rails when it comes to the legal environment they're in. No, I think that's really useful. And maybe, um, I mean, you and I are aware at the moment there's quite a lot of work going on around uh, the payment of ransom in the cyber context and quite what that looks like. And, um, you know, it's still evolving, but, uh, let's put it that way. And maybe that's a subject that we we talk about um, on, a, on a separate podcast. But finally, and, and maybe uh, just in a few minutes, I, I thought I would ask at the end about Samfire uh, because we are a relatively... Um, new market entrant being being in the market for for just over a year uh and i I thought it'd be a useful opportunity for you to talk a little bit about the expertise that you have on the team but but also just around the products that um that you're putting out and why why they're different and why they might be of interest both to intermediaries but also to to organizations or families who are who are thinking about about this type of cup yeah sure i mean i think you know our first mission as a, as a market is, is to make these products accessible, you know, to, to make transacting what can be quite a complex um, insurance product. You know, as I think we've touched on the, the, the broadness that sits behind a fairly narrow name. Um, you know, where can you come and, and find that product that's easy to transact where you can get good advice around what it is, where you can have um, you know, genuine expertise helping you make an informed decision around what your client needs. So we work closely with our broker partners to do that. And we, you know, we have good technology to make sure that as and when a client wishes to buy a policy from us, it can be delivered in a seamless manner. But in terms of the products itself, you know, one of my personal long-held beliefs is that you know, we, we are in the business of helping people protect their people. That's what it kind of comes down to. But we are only addressing arguably an element of, of, of protecting people's people which is around kind of security risk, as we've talked about. But there's, there's travel risk, there's medical risk. There's the exposure to um, terrorist-style situations, active assailant, kind of lone wolf situations. And these are all situations or incidents which can be covered by insurance. But typically, they have to be bought in three separate policies. So in insurance parlance, you'd have your kidnap and ransom policy, you'd have your PA, medical style policy to protect people against personal accident SPA, right? Personal accident, sorry, yes. Um, And then you have your terrorism uh, policies protecting against that kind of lone wolf scenario. My long-held belief is actually there's there's a lot of um, touch points between those three products. They're all about protecting people, protecting flesh and bones. They're all to a degree about giving help and expertise when, when crisis hits. Could be a medical evacuation, could be access to public relations consultants following a you know a, a terrorist incident on your premises, whatever it may be. So our kind of mission is to, is to make these products highly accessible, but also to blend them together so that clients can come to us and brokers can come to us and find a kind of one-stop shop for protecting their 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 human assets and by extension their reputations. A kind of you know a duty of care one-stop shop where we'll give them integrated products and we will give them help and expertise via a single telephone number, so not separate telephone numbers depending on the incident, via a single telephone number on the back of that policy. So I think if I was to summarise 
to make these products accessible, to make them more easily understood, and to make them um, available on a blended basis. Well, that's a very clear, Charlie. Thank you. Um, look, we we started out um, with me suggesting that uh, this was a misunderstood insurance product, uh, and perhaps the most poorly named product out there in the market. And um, I think you've done a great job of of talking us through really the evolution of Kinaparants and Cover, and uh, who the kind of protagonists are, um, and then equally explaining why. Um, you know, the confidentiality exists and, and why this isn't a kind of shadowy world, but actually there's some practical and, and reasonable mm-hmm. reasons why why much of this is kept out of the public domain. I think importantly, you've talked through um, who buys the cover, which is a lot broader than perhaps most people think, uh, because this isn't the type of thing you talk about, um, you know, at, at lunch, because it's a confidential policy. Um, I think it's very useful to talk through the various aspects, um, and I think probably better to refer to this as a security risks product. Um, so we talked about that kind of disappearance piece, uh, the political evacuation, which occurs actually quite a lot, this this issue of malicious detention, which I think with a re- return to great power competition, we're, we're likely to see more of, and then almost the more mundane workplace violence issues that are also covered by this. Um, and, and I think this realization really that families tend to get this quickly because um because you, you do tend to get it quickly but that for organizations this is really around meeting duty of care obligations that that almost all organizations have if they've got people leaving their place of work but um useful to know that, that the aim of samfar is to if you like demystify make this accessible i think perhaps we might talk about um in a in a subsequent uh, podcast this link between KNR uh, personal accident and travel and terrorism because I think that's really interesting where those those all, all cross over but for now um, thank you very much I hope our listeners have enjoyed it and I look forward to chatting to you again on our next Sampar podcast thanks Chris thanks John <laughs>